It's Wednesday, June 12th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Alabama Governor Kay Ivey has signed a bill that would require people convicted of certain sex offenses to undergo chemical castration as a condition of parole, a requirement meant to keep them from committing similar crimes. The process is not permanent and can be reversed, but there are ethical questions and concerns if it actually works as a deterrent. Marissa Ayati, reporter for The Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, there has been a rise in unproven billion-dollar healthcare industries and the FDA is attempting to get them under control. The FDA just won a ruling that will stop stem cell treatments at a Florida clinic after some patients went blind after being injected with an extract made from their own fat. Caitlin Owens, reporter for Axios, joins us for more on this ruling and also where the FDA plans on getting involved next, the booming CBD industry. Finally, do you really need dark mode? It is the big tech trend right now and Apple just announced it's coming to its new iOS 13. It's being praised as a way to reduce the strain on your eyes and make you more productive. But is it all that it's made out to be? Based on existing studies, it's not. But it sure looks cool, and it isn't as bad as the blue light coming from your white screens. Ariel Pardis, Senior Associate Editor at Wired, joins us for the popularity of dark mode. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. People are not actually applying this law often. It may be on the books, but there haven't been a lot of instances of someone actually being forced to take this kind of medication because of a sex offense. Joining us now is Marissa Ayati, reporter for The Washington Post. Alabama was just in the news for passing the most restrictive abortion law in the country. Now they're in the news again for another bill that was passed, this time concerning sex offenders. Alabama Governor Kay Ivey signed a bill that's going to require people convicted of certain sex offenses to undergo chemical castration as a condition of parole. It's a hope to keep these perpetrators from committing similar crimes again. Tell us a little bit about this bill. The bill requires that anybody who has been convicted of a sex offense involving a child under 13 get this chemical castration as a condition of their parole. So they would have to start taking this medication a month before it being released and keep taking it regularly until a judge decides they don't need to anymore. Importantly, castration is kind of a misnomer. What it is is testosterone suppressing medication. It is supposed to decrease libido and make someone less likely to have impulses that they can't stop themselves from acting on. And these effects are only active while the person is taking the drug. So, I mean, once they're done, it, it everything is reversible, basically. Right. So the frequency with which someone would need to take the drug depends on which specific type of drug was prescribed for them. But they would need to take it on a regular basis. And then if they stopped taking it, it would wear off. This bill is not applied retroactively, right? This is only for offenses that occur after September 1st of the year. Right. A lot of people could think this might be cruel and unusual or something. Tell us about some of the studies that have been done as far as the effectiveness of this, because this is very limited. This is only for people that have committed offenses against children. This is not just broader sex offenses in general. There are a lot of different elements to this. There have not been a lot of studies done on how effective this kind of treatment even is at lowering rates of sexual offenses. Some studies that have been done on this topic have found that it can be very effective. Others have found that it didn't make a difference at all. There is also questions about 
what the effect would be on women who may have been convicted of a sex offense and whether that would do anything for them. Now, one of the surprising things that I realized in the article is that there's other states, seven other states in U.S. territories that have similar law on the books. How have those fared in, in these other places? Each of the laws in the other states and territories are a little bit different from one another. Most are not mandatory the way that Alabama's law is mandatory for anyone convicted of an offense with someone under 13. But in a lot of these states, what my reporting has showed is that people are not actually applying this law often. It may be on the books, but there haven't been a lot of instances of someone actually being forced to take this kind of medication because of a sex offense. Those other areas are California, Florida, Guam, Iowa, Louisiana, Montana, and Wisconsin, and now obviously Alabama. One of the important distinctions in this law is that the judge, not a doctor, would tell the offender about the effects of the treatment. The reason why that's important is experts are saying that this might not amount to a full informed consent since this news is not being delivered by a doctor. Yes. One of the psychiatrists that I talked with said that a lot of physicians would not consider it informed consent if it was not a medical professional actually filling them in on the drug and what could happen, what some of the side effects are. There's a wide range of side effects depending on which specific drug is used, but they include depression, osteoporosis, even heart failure. Has there been any indication that this law will get challenged? Ethically, some people have argued that this is not within the appropriate realm of the criminal justice system, that convicted offenders can't give full and free consent if this is a requirement in order for them to get out on parole. From a legal standpoint, there are questions about whether it's considered cruel under the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishments. The ACLU in Alabama has come out against it, although they have not filed any sort of legal action, but they have said that sexual assault is about more than just sex and that they don't think this will be effective. They call it impermissible medical experimentation. I mean, this sounds like more of a deterrent rather than anything else. As you said, even in the other states, it's rarely implemented. So it's more of kind of the spook factor for these offenders. Uh, you know, if you're going to get out on parole, you know, this is what you have to kind of go through in the bill. They can choose to stop taking the medication but then they would have to return to prison. They would not be able to continue to be out on parole. That's right. Although some of the doctors that I've talked with did point out that if somebody has what is considered an irresistible impulse to sexually offend, then the idea that this might be a deterrent is not exactly on point. How about the public perception in Alabama? I can't imagine that a lot of people would really have sympathy for sex offenders, especially of people that have taken advantage of children. So how has that played out in the public sphere? I can't speak specifically to the public in Alabama, but what I can tell you is that the laws on the books in some of the other states have stayed in place largely because there aren't a lot of organizations or people, like you said, who are willing to stick their neck out for people convicted of sexual offenses. Yeah, I'm just curious as to if somebody were to challenge this, is if they're going to do it, the law was just signed, if they're going to put something soon or the first time that this would get implemented. So something to keep an eye on. Marissa Ayati, reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thank you. The big thing here is to realize these are not regulated, proven therapies that come with a risk. These are things that are not proven. There's not scientific evidence behind them being, saying that this is even a risk worth taking. Joining us now is Caitlin Owens, healthcare reporter for Axios. We're going to be talking about the rise of unproven billion-dollar healthcare industries 
two in particular right now. One that's really rising all over the place, a little under the radar, even though the FDA has been dealing with them for some time. There's just not been a lot of enforcement. Those are these stem cell clinics where clinics are taking stem cells out of either fat, amniotic stem cells, things from umbilical cords or placentas, and then re-injecting them back into patients and claiming that it's going to cure all sorts of different ailments that somebody might have. The other industry is the CBD industry, which is just blowing up. Tell us a little bit about how the FDA is trying to get a handle on these guys. They're both similar in a couple ways. First of all, they're very popular. They're billion-dollar industries, and there's really a consistency of people saying, you know, these are kind of miracle cures. On the other hand, the FDA's approach to them is pretty different because the simple clinics, these are actually, these have caused harm to patients. So the FDA is pursuing, it, it just won a lawsuit, and it's a little bit different of an approach versus CBD, where the key question here is kind of how to regulate. It. How do we make sure that these claims are accurate and how do we make sure that CBD is being manufactured correctly as it kind of blows up? With the stem cell treatments, there's been some actual documented examples of people really getting hurt. In the case that we're going to be talking about right now, people went blind after they were taking fat injections and putting them into people's eyes. With CBD, there's been no reports of really anything bad happening yet. So let's start with the stem cell clinics. We actually did, in a previous episode of the podcast, we did a deep dive on some of these clinics that were doing amniotic versus embryonic stem cell injections. It was an article that ProPublica had published. But this latest case was a win for the FDA against a clinic in Florida. And they were dealing specifically with fat that was taken out of patients and then being re-injected back into them. Tell us a little bit about that. Stem cell clinics, I think you brushed on this earlier, but they can take cells from various parts of a person's body and re-inject them. And that's part of the interesting thing about the phenomenon is that they're being taken from various body parts and being said to cure all kinds of different diseases. So this particular clinic that the FDA won its lawsuit against, it was injecting, in the case of some patients, it injected fat cells into their eyes and they went blind. But I think the big thing here is to realize these are not regulated, proven therapies that come with a risk. These are things that are not proven. There's not scientific evidence behind them being, saying that this is even a risk worth taking. How many of these stem cell clinics are there in the U.S. right now? Because the FDA hasn't been really enforcing things across the board. They're just focusing on more, the more risky actors. You know, the FDA just doesn't have the proper resources to handle all of them. How many clinics do we have here? One count is about 700 clinics, although the person who came up with that number says that's probably actually an underrepresentation. There's probably about 1,000 in the U.S., the reason the FDA has taken a little while, Scott Gottlieb came in and he did want to regulate the clinics. But, you know, and as I was talking to him for my story, he just said it's a process, right? Like the regulatory apparatus has to go through a process. So it takes some time to begin doing the actions that they wanted to do. So this lawsuit was kind of the fruition of almost, what, two years of efforts to get after these stem cell clinics. I think as you were saying, I think you hit on this too, they do have to take a risk based approach where it's kind of going after the riskiest clinics that have already had adverse effects on patients. But the downside of that is, well, you know, you're going after the worst actors. You're also going after actors that have already hurt patients. So it's kind of this cycle that because of limited resources, the FDA is playing a little bit of catch up on this. Yeah. And even experts are saying that all the other clinics are still going to be operating until something happens. They might move away from some of these fat stem cells and move into different things like from bone marrow, the umbilical cord stuff. Mm -hmm. So even still with this win for the FDA, it gives them a little extra bite on there, but who's to say what all the other clinics are going to do. And the next big industry that the FDA wants to get involved into is this booming CBD industry. Since the legalization of marijuana has happened in a lot of states now, 
CBD, which is kind of the non-THC component that you can derive from the plants, these things have been also booming for the same thing, being marketed as something that can take care of a a range of issues, uh, sleep aid, minor aches and pains, all sorts of stuff. So what is the FDA doing to try to get a handle on, on the CBD industry? A few weeks ago, the FDA had its first public hearing on the issue, just starting to ask the question of how do we regulate this? It's kind of a free-for-all right now. And as you said, you know, there are all kinds of claims being made about CBD. And the, the truth is that these are unproven. We don't know whether these claims are accurate or not. So I think the FDA is trying to get a handle on, okay, like how do we make sure that the industry is at least making honest claims? And another concern that was brought up is just making sure that the products are being manufactured safely, that there's no contaminant, whatever else comes into the process just to make Make sure that, you know, you're getting CBD and it's safely made. Right. And I think that's where the FDA really has to step in is largely it seems that CBD is for the most part safe, but it starts coming into play when you're making it into something, when you're making a drink out of it, when you're making food with it. How are these people actually manufacturing this stuff? And then it kind of changes shape and form. I know in California specifically, the California State Assembly passed the bill already. The state senators are taking up a bill any day now. And then the governor is expected to sign it if it all passes. So this is very much on its way working through the system. And the FDA, yeah, definitely needs to catch up. That's the kind of funny thing about it is we don't, we think CBD is safe, but I think it's kind of like dotting the I's, crossing the T's. And, you know, when I was talking to a former FDA commissioner, Mark McClellan, he was saying that this is similar to dietary supplements where, you know, the FDA does have a role in making sure these things are safe. Whether they're miracle cures or not, they need to at least be doing no harm. Yeah, the FDA is really going to be concentrating on when people are making outlandish claims like the CBD oil you're going to take is going to cure cancer or something. They're going to focus on, on a lot of those aspects. So, Caitlin Owens, healthcare reporter for Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I like to think of it almost as like your phone entering its cool teenage goth phase. There's something very appealing about it. Joining us now is Ariel Pardis, Senior Associate Editor at Wired, covering personal tech, social media. We're going to be talking about the tech trend du jour right now, which is everybody going into dark mode. The Apple Worldwide Developer Conference just happened earlier in the week. One of the things that received more applause than just about anything else was that dark mode was coming to the new iOS. But this is going on all over the place. Twitter did it a while ago. Google Chrome, Safari, you can do it on Microsoft stuff. Everybody wants to go into this and use dark mode. And everybody positions it as something that is easier on the eyes, helps improve productivity. It really just makes everything so much cooler. But does it really help with the eye strain? And does it really help you get more productive? Tell us a little bit about how much dark mode is gaining in popularity? Well, from anecdotal evidence, people love dark mode. And it's easy to see why so many tech platforms are starting to adopt it because it has this real cool factor. I like to think of it almost as like your phone entering its cool teenage goth phase. There's something (laughs) very appealing about it. But these claims attached to dark mode, claims around productivity, relief from eye strain, better concentration, those don't really seem to pan out according to the research. What studies have shown I mean, eye strain, when it comes to eye strain, it really doesn't pan out there so much. I mean, I think the amount of time that you spend looking at a screen is really what's going to affect that. There's been actually quite a great deal of research on legibility and readability of different text colors on screens. And what that research shows is that text 
with positive polarity, which is a fancy term for a white background with dark text, is much more readable than the opposite, negative polarity or dark background with light text. And that's pretty much true across the board, across many different studies. You're going to be able to read things more easily with a a white screen. With eye strain, the research is a little bit more mixed. There are some cases in which a darker background can maybe relieve eye strain, like if you're looking at a screen in a very, very dark room. But even the research there doesn't seem to suggest that dark mode is as good for the eyes as some of these tech companies would like you to believe. Yeah, there was an interesting part of the article where you talk about the positive polarities and the negative polarities. And basically, on a positive polarity, your pupils do constrict a little bit more. So that could lend somebody to think, well, your eyes are straining. But when you go with the darker background and the lighter text, your pupils dilate a little bit. So sometimes things actually come in a little blurrier. And that can make it harder to read the text that's on the screen, which in most cases, if you're looking at a screen, you're reading something and you're going to want to choose the color scheme that makes it easiest for your brain to process what's there. Talk to us a little bit about that white screen, because people think it's bright white, but it's actually this blue light. There's been a lot of studies related to that and how, you know, this blue light could be a factor in eye tiredness. They've done studies about how when you look at your phone, that blue light really uh, keeps you from sleeping well. Most research on blue light seems to show that there is some effect in looking at blue light in terms of keeping people awake, but the converse is not true in the sense that it will not necessarily prevent you from going to sleep. So it's sort of inconclusive. My personal stance on all of this is that you should look at whatever feels most comfortable to you, whether it's turning off the blue light on your computer screen after a certain hour of the day, whether it's flipping your phone into dark mode because it feels better for your eyes, but that ultimately most of the eye strain that we're experiencing is probably just from overuse of screens in general, and that we could probably all stand to look at a laptop or a phone less than we are now, and our eyes would thank us. There was a study done in 2009 where people actually preferred the white screen, the white background over the dark one, and this just might be the changing of that trend. That study was done 10 years ago. Everybody wants to get into that darker goth face on their devices now, (laughs) and, and maybe that's what's driving this. But for battery life, a lot of people have been pointing to this. If your phone does use an OLED screen, it actually might have this byproduct of being better for the battery. That's one of the areas that I think dark mode really shines in terms of its battery savings. If you have one of these OLED screens, then a dark mode that uses pure black in its design can actually save a lot of battery on your phone because it means it's lighting up less of the screen. It would be as if you turned off a bunch of the lamps in your household and only had the light that was essential. However, that's not true of dark modes across the board and it's not true of dark modes across different devices. So if you have an older phone with an LCD screen, you're not going to see any of that battery saving effect. And if you're using a dark mode that uses dark gray or a steel blue rather than a pure black, you're also not going to see any battery savings. I mean, we're all guilty of picking up our phones in the middle of the night and that white screen is so bright. I usually just turn down the brightness all the way. And I am personally excited for the dark mode on the iPhone, which I do have. Just a quick question to you. How many of your devices do you have on dark mode? I use it on Twitter. I use it on Reddit. And I do have night mode turned on. But take all those claims with a grain of salt about how much it can really save you in uh, eye strain or improve your productivity. Ariel Pardis, Senior Associate Editor at Wired, covering personal technology and social media. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.